This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the Christchurch Historical Association Annual Lecture Series, featuring University of Canterbury academics, senior research students and visiting scholars sharing their passion for history. This month, Dr Martin Fisher presents a talk on Negotiating History, the Ngaitahu Treaty Settlement Historical Account. Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai haere mai ki te hui CHA, Heather Warfram TNA. Welcome everyone to this, the second meeting of the Canterbury Historical Association for 2022. Um, it's good to see uh, many familiar faces again this month. Um, I hope that you were with us last month for Yevgeny Pavlov's talk, um, either in person in the lecture theatre or online. Um, I think you'll agree that was really fascinating look into Putin's use of history and of course a very timely one given uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, this evening however for our second talk it's a great pleasure to be introducing my colleague Martin Fisher who's a senior lecturer at the Naitahu Research Centre here at the University of Canterbury. Um, Martin as you'll be aware if you've read his uh, background has worked in the Treaty of Waitangi Claims process um, and has a number of research interests which connect very well with uh, that experience, including um, an interest in colonial and modern histories of Crown Maori interactions. And um, beyond that, an interest in indigenous sovereignty in a global context. Uh, Martin has written uh, well, actually a very large number of articles and chapters, but um, fairly recently in 2020, he published a book which was titled A Long Time Coming, The Story of Naitahu's Treaty Settlement Negotiations with the Crown. Um, and that obviously connects very nicely with uh, tonight's book, which you can see is called Negotiating History, the Naitahu Treaty Settlement Historical Account and Apology. So just before I hand over to Martin, uh, Martin will speak for, I think, around about 40, 45 minutes. Um, and then I'll open the floor for questions uh, from you. Um, uh, and I will make sure that everyone's microphone is, is uh, muted while Martin is speaking, but I'll unmute you for question time. So kia ora Martin, and um, I hand the floor over to you. Uh, kia ora, thank you, Heather. A ko mātani toko ingoa, no hane kariaho, no kanata hoki, a ki aotearoa a i noho ao ki te whanganui ātara me o te pōti, a engari inaia nei ke te mahi mō naitahu ki te whare wānanga o Waitaha. Uh, so kia ora everyone, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming out tonight um, to listen to this talk. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, and Heather's mentioned, my name is Martin Fisher, uh, and I obviously work at the Naitahu uh, Research Center at the University of Canterbury. Uh, so I'm originally from Hungary. Uh, I was born in Budapest and uh, kind of connecting to the last seminar. So we left when it was still Soviet Hungary. 
Um, so we were actually refugees at the time. That was just before the fall of the Soviet Union. Nobody obviously knew at the time that it was about to come. Um, and we moved to Canada. That's where I picked up this accent. And that's why I sound like this. Uh, and then we moved to New Zealand with my family, um, just with my mom getting a job here when I was in high school. And I spent most of my adult life um, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So that's just a little bit of where I come from. Uh, and to explain my accent, it's usually people's question, why is this person discussing this New Zealand history with me, who sounds like an American? Um, and I'm very, very lucky to work where I do. Um, history is my background. And yeah, I was very lucky to be able to do a PhD looking at the history of the first two major treaty settlement negotiations, um, the Waikato Tainui Raupatu or confiscation settlement um, and the Naitahu settlement. And that's um, how I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to, um, to, be able to teach uh, at the University of Canterbury. So let's get on to today's topic. And so I'll be looking at a specific aspect of the Naitahu Treaty Settlement, and, and of indeed all treaty settlements. There have been about 75. We've probably got another 20, 25 to go. Uh, it's probably going to be about 100 in the end. And this is obviously one of the first major uh, tribally negotiated settlements, which we can see the, the signing of the deed of settlement there at Takahanamarai in Kaikoura just up the coast, um, and we can see New Zealander of the Year, Sir Tiffany O'Regan uh, was the chief negotiator for Naitahu, and he's putting um, his pen to paper there, and we've got uh, Jim Bolger, the prime minister at the time, and Doug Graham, the minister of treaty negotiations and minister of justice, uh, who's putting his own pen down. They're the two, two main signatories um, to the deed. Now, you know, treaty settlement negotiations are generally recognized, you know, regarding their financial sort of footprint, you know, with their provision of this economic redress. And even though I stated in my little um, summary that I wouldn't be talking about that, I still, it shows you how the financial footprint is everywhere in treaty settlements. I will talk a little bit about that, but I will be more focused then on these kind of very sites of quite unique and fascinating public histories which are these historical accounts and apologies. So these apologies for treaty breaches and acknowledgements of wrongdoing made by the Crown are contextualized by this negotiated historical account of the relations between the settling claimant group, obviously we're gonna talk about Naitahu today, and the Crown. So I'll explore the negotiation of one of the first of these historical accounts, um, and we'll look at the, the different characters involved from the Naitahu side, um, Naitahu negotiators, uh, as well as some of the crown negotiators uh, through their Office of Treaty Settlements, which used to be the government department in charge of negotiating treaty settlements, uh, and as well as the Crown Law Office, which actually they, after the Office of Treaty Settlements, have the biggest batch of historians uh, and so the Crown Law Office is obviously there defending effectively the Crown's sovereignty um, and the Crown's view of things. Now, these settlements are intended to address and resolve historical claims by Māori against the Crown. 
And these negotiations, you know, are infused with a wide range of historical debates, you know, regarding the history of colonization here. Now, early in the development of our modern treaty settlement negotiations process, it became clear that the crown would need to go beyond purely money and even the return of land, but that an apology was necessary, and especially this historical account. Former Minister of Treaty Negotiations, Doug Graham, who we can see there, who was the minister at the time of the Naitahu settlement, you know, has commented that the historical events needed to be put, quote, in their proper place, not forgotten, but accepted. And we've seen state apologies increase in prominence since the late 20th century, especially. Historians, political scientists, sociologists, lawyers have explored the development of apologies here in New Zealand, but also in North America, in Europe, Japan, and Australia. Now, while those works have kind of looked at the political and historical context to apologies by the state, there hasn't been any look at a tribal type apology, which occurs here. There's not really the same thing that happens in the United States and in Canada when it comes to the formal apologies. That's it's quite unique that we do here. Now, these historical accounts and the apologies that are produced are meant to be as unbiased, unemotional, and neutral as possible. The language has to be completely neutral. Uh, you can't name anybody lower than a minister of the crown. So the ministers can be named, but anybody below the ministerial level throughout all of New Zealand's history, no matter what kind of treaty breach they contributed to, you cannot put their name in there. So we can see how it's kind of a curated little bit of public history and one that obviously frustrates some claimants because of that. They wanna name somebody who did, in their opinions, and, and often with the support of facts, did something that contributed to these treaty breaches. But despite all this neutrality, all this kind of staleness that's associated with it, we can see that there's actually a conversation going on between the two sides that leads to the production of this historical account. And in some ways, it can uh, reflect the assertion of Naitahu's Tino uh, Rangatiratanga, or their independence, but also the crown very clearly defending its own view of the sovereignty which it has here. They would disagree with each other, but within these interactions, some sense of shared historical understanding was created. You know, as one Office of Treaty Settlements official commented uh, during the latter stages of another set of negotiations, historical accounts embodied, quote, the need to reconcile the Crown's desire for brevity and clarity with the Iwi's desire to set the historical record straight. Now, at the time of the development of Naitahu's treaty settlement negotiations in the 1990s, Naitahu's history had recently been examined in depth during Naitahu's Waitangi tribunal hearings from 1987 to 1989. Most of the hearings taking place here in the South, uh, about 26 weeks over these two and a half, three years uh, of hearings, with only a couple taking place in Wellington. The rest, um, around the different marae and, and sometimes in the cities as well. Now, 
In February 1991, we get the release of the main NITAPA report. This thing is pretty large. At the time, it's easily the longest report. It has been eclipsed by now, but at the time, it's still pretty big. It's about 1,300 pages and covers the main section of Tekereme, the NITAPA claim, which I'll talk about in just a couple of minutes in summary. Now, each side, Naitahu and the Crown had concerns with the conclusions in this report. But they said, let's set it aside and let's just agree to use the report as a sort of baseline for the negotiation. We'll see neither side could really stick to that, but that's, that's what was kind of put forward. Now, a key early discussion was regarding the issue of how do we quantify the loss? And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. Uh, but this is sort of a preview of the historical account debates that will emerge. So the negotiations take place from 1991, and then they finish in 1997, 98, depending on when you kind of accept the end of the negotiation taking place. And there's a gap in the middle where they're in litigation mode. They've completely, negotiations break down from late 94 to early 96. So it's just to give ourselves a general kind of idea of the chronology. And what I'll discuss for most of today's talk is this period in 1996, just before they're about to sign something called an agreement in principle, which is a key stage on the path to final settlement. Uh, and, and that's where we'll look at these specific differing views. Naita, whose primary historical advisor and negotiator on this issue was Professor, well, today Professor Tamari To, who, uh, just so we're clear, is actually my boss today. <laughs> but he wasn't at the time that I was doing my studies in this. But it is when I met him. He was much younger at the time, uh, was certainly not professor, and he wasn't the upoko or the head of Nai Tuahuriri, which is the hapu based out at Tuahiri today. He was aided uh, by Nai Tahu legal advisor named Nick Davidson. He's actually a British guy, uh, worked for Bell Gully Buttle Weir, which is at one of our enormous law firms, still around obviously today. And then you have these Office of Treaty Settlements and Crown Law officials um, were on the Crown side. And obviously, I won't be mentioning any of their names either, uh, which is just to keep confidentiality because it's something that, that's happened so recently. Even some people who I thought looked really good out of the archive from the Crown side, I still couldn't name them, um, even if they had wanted to. So hopefully what we'll see today is the ways in which the crown controls this process, this neutral tone, not being able to name certain people, but we can't ignore the agency that the Maori claimants, in this case, Naitahu, also bring to the table. There are some changes that can be made. There are things that can be done. Naitahu could have significant input into their apologies and could obtain important concessions. Now, the law professor Richard Boast has commented that these historical accounts are, quote, inevitably lifeless, tedious to read, and indeed to write, although he probably got paid very well to do it. But what I hope to show you today is that although the accounts and apologies tend to have the most neutral tone and, and uncontroversial historical positions, the debates that occur between the Crown and claimants are far from lifeless. So the apology redress. 
So you've basically got three categories of redress or compensation in these treaty settlements that we do here in New Zealand. Financial redress, cultural redress, and apology redress. Today, any deed of settlement for a treaty settlement will have this historical account setting out this agreed relations, sets the scene. Then you would get this acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the crown, and finally, an apology. This wasn't the case for Naitahu specifically. It was The historical account was just called a preamble. It was quite short. Uh, it's only a couple pages long, whereas today some preambles are 50 pages long, 60 pages. We're talking about master's length uh, products. Uh, so they have changed in many ways, um, certainly in terms of their size. But for Naitahu, their acknowledgments and their apology were kind of crunched together. Some of these pieces of redress are really important to claimants. The most important thing, they don't care about the money. They don't care about maybe even the lands returned or not that they might don't care, but it's not as important as this apology. It really hammers home that the crown has come to them and has made a formal apology in person, as we can see Prime Minister Jenny Shipley doing so at Onuku Madai, outside of Akaroa there for Naitahu. And, and we'll watch a clip at the very end. I've got a little one minute from it. Others think it's hollow, contrived, forced. So there's all types of different views, but I would say the vast majority recognize the importance of this and the uniqueness that New Zealand has made it a centerpiece of the treaty settlement process here. Uh, it's something we can often criticize the crown, but we can always also recognize uh, where it can get things right, um, at least for a time. So there's the apology re redress. And this is basically what we're going to be talking about is the product um, of the negotiations is this account and these acknowledgements and this apology. The apology that we'll be discussing, we need to know what it's about. Uh, and we're just doing this in very quick summary. For some of my classes, obviously, we spend multiple lectures going through the extent of the Naitahu claim, Tekareme, but it's important for us to just get a grip on what was occurring. So just for a few minutes, we'll just spend on this which is the core of the Naitahu claim. These are the 10 purchases of land made between 1844 to 1864. Now here we've got a list of eight purchases. Um, this is the Banks Peninsula purchases are in fact three. You can see it on the map there, Port Cooper, Littleton Fakaropo, Port Levy, and Akaroa. Now these 10 land purchases, if they become eight, as we have it set out in the table there, formed the, the crux of the claim. They formed part of what was known as the nine tall trees of the claim, representing these eight purchases, and the ninth being the restrictions on access to Mahinga Kai, or food gathering sites. So obviously you lose access to the land, and then you lose access to the water bodies. Uh, we're talking about river mouths, obviously the rivers, the streams, the lakes, 
Um, and as well as the high country, for example, um, going hunting for weka and other food gathering, for example, in the inland lakes uh, down in central Otago and elsewhere. So this is the key aspect of the Naitahu claim. You have about 34 million acres of land. You can see that the Naitahu territory stretches from just south of Blenheim at the Paranui Ofiti, up here, the White Cliffs, and then on the west coast up to Kahurangi Point, um, north of Karamia. Makes up a little bit over half of our total land mass. Now for those approximately 34 million acres, only a little bit less than 15,000 pounds was paid and about 37 and a half thousand acres reserved. So you can see that only about one one thousandth of every acre purchased was reserved. This became undeniably the core finding of the Waitangi Tribunal that although it didn't find in Naitahu's favor on all aspects of its claim, and we'll touch on some of that, because uh, obviously it came up for debate, overwhelmingly Naitahu uh, had claims which were well-founded that clearly the Crown had breached the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi by not reserving nearly enough land and allowing Naitahu to descend into a state of poverty um, that was certainly undeserved. And most of all, the provisions of the treaty and the instructions provided by Lord Normanby, the Secretary of State for the Colonies to Captain William Hobson, about the way that the Crown would conduct itself in both the acquisition of sovereignty and the later the acquisition of land has clearly not been followed. The Otago Block, 1844, 2,400 pounds, probably one of the fairer purchases. The actual purchasers were known. They were the ones compensated. We can come to Kemp's Deed or the Canterbury Block in which we reside right now. Certainly one of the most unfair purchases of land in our entire history, only 2,000 pounds. Originally, it stretched all the way to, to Taipotini to the west coast and took up 20 million acres of land. Uh, an extremely unfair purchase. And generally we can see around the place that Naitahu is essentially restricted to these tiny, tiny reserves. Certainly Tuahiwi, just outside of Kayapoi, was easily the largest at two and a half thousand acres. But in total in Kemp's deed, the original 20 million acres, only 6,000. Uh, 359 acres reserved, uh, just absurd. The North Canterbury block, not a single acre was reserved because all of the lands had already been sold to settlers. So we can see some massive, massive issues at play. And this formed the core of the claim. We'll touch on a little bit of the purchase of Port Levy, and we'll talk a little bit about a very unique aspect of the claim regarding tenths, the principle that a tenth of all the land should have been reserved, um, which stemmed out of the Otago block. Now, the historical debates regarding uh, the, his the historical account and apology, as I mentioned previously, are mainly happening in sort of mid-1996. So let's get down to this period now. 
Now, the terms of reference from the Crown included a very strong reliance on the tribunal report for its findings. Now, at first, both sides are more than happy uh, with this term of reference that they can always go back to the tribunal. But Tamari To, the principal historical advisor for Naitahu, also wanted a statement added, which acknowledged that the two parties would be approaching the statements from different cultural contexts and that these contexts should be reflected in the statements. This kind of thinking reflected Tao's later work on the same issue. Uh, in 2001, he published the chapter uh, in, in the really groundbreaking Histories, Power and Loss um, edited anthology uh, titled, uh, his chapter was titled Mataranga Māori as an epistemology. And Tao argued that traditional Māori knowledge was a separate form of knowing that had to be preserved from the, from the methods of Western epistemology. Now, in that vein, Tao wanted the historical account to have a specific structure that would begin with a karakia, a Māori prayer, uh, followed by a poroporo aki, a lament for the dead, uh, a mihi setting out the background, a kaupapa setting out the purpose, and to finish with a specially commissioned waiata or song for the occasion. For him, the apology should be delivered orally as well as in written form, which it was. And while many Naitahu members wanted the ceremony on a marae, Tau believed that the occasion was of national significance and also wanted it in a public space so that there would be two ceremonies, let's say one in Christchurch and perhaps one um, at a chosen marae. Now, Tau Tau also advocated for royal involvement in the ceremony. So Waikato Tainui had signed the previous year. They were the first major tribal settlement and they received royal assent. That means that they actually received an apology directly from Queen Elizabeth II, who happened to be visiting here on one of her royal tours at the time. It was quite a coup for Waikato Tainui and shows what kind of leverage they had. Now, he asserted that Waikato Tainui had a history of antagonism to the crown, but that Naitahu had always been loyal, raising funds for the campaigns in the Waikato and Taranaki during the land wars. This is actually true. And obviously sending many soldiers to both world wars. There was no opposition from the crown for this recognition. And so we can see here an excerpt from the apology and that the final version contained a section specifically addressing Naitahu's loyalty and military sacrifice for the nation. This recognition that Naitahu had been consistently loyal, that the tribe had honored its obligations and responsibilities under the treaty and duties as citizens of the nation, especially but not exclusively in their active service in all major conflicts. The crown pays tribute to Naitahu's loyalty and to the contribution made by the tribe to the nation. Now, as had occurred during the intense negotiating period I mentioned in the early 90s previously regarding this quantification of loss, the issue of tense remained as an important point of difference between the crown and Naitahu representatives. So I'll just pause for a second here just to talk about this quantification of loss. 
This was the key issue around tents and shows the ways in which the history could often overlap with this financial side. So the key issue for Naitahu and one of its key negotiating principles was that they were based the amount of lands which they should have had reserved for them as one tenth of the total. And this was based on certain promises made through the New Zealand company, which was the original uh, purchaser of the Otago block. So if we even just go back to look at here, we can see the Otago block down here. Initially, the New Zealand company was meant to purchase this, but the New Zealand company settlers never arrived for various other external reasons. And eventually it becomes the Scottish type settlement and the Otago Settlers Association led by Captain Cargill. They completely ignore any promises made by the New Zealand company. And the New Zealand company had this policy of tents. We know it because we have tents in Nelson, we have them in Wellington, we have them in New Plymouth, some of the other colonies, which were actually New Zealand company colonies that were established. So it's got a bit of a gray area, essentially. The tribunal finds against Naitahu for this idea of tents. They say that they don't have enough contemporary evidence from 1844 about it. But the tribunal, you know, kind of has it both ways. Because later in their report, the tribunal says, if Naitahu had been reserved one-tenth of the land, it would have greatly been to their advantage, and maybe there wouldn't be a claim at all. So Naitahu points to that aspect of the re that report, and the Crown points to them saying, no, on the specific evidence, we say you don't have a case in Otago. So here's where this tense principle comes from. And it essentially forms some of these early attempts at a final settlement. Within six months of them starting negotiations, you know, it ends up taking six, seven years. Naitahu proposes this $1.3 billion settlement based on the fact that one-tenth of the land uh, was valued at that in 1991-1992. The Crown counters with $100 million. The negotiations essentially start breaking down from there, and we don't get to $170 million until many years later. But I just wanted to pause here for a second so that we understand that this idea of tents actually had a whole lot of currency uh, and went all over the place. So it comes back as an issue to be discussed during the historical account. Because Naitahu historians once again maintain that the principle of tents mentioned in the tribunal report can be applied to all of its purchases of land. Even if the Crown didn't say that it was going to provide tents in all 10 places, they still wanted that principle set out that it should have been done. Crown law and their historians, of course, questions the validity of the Naitahu claim to tents and points out the tribunal's own findings, right? And we get this back and forth here. Now, the Crown Law historian noted that even those groups um, such as the Port Nicholson Trust, which is the Wellington-based one, that had tents awarded uh, in the mid-19th century, the Māori groups were not provided with a tenth of the lands in private ownership, but rather the Crown decided how that money would be spent for decades, over a century, 
and they were used for what education, educational or whatever civilizing purposes of the day that the government desired. Now the Crown Law historian uh, claimed that not only would the land have been used in whatever way the government of the day had decided, um, but you know these these government formulated land trusts would effectively control it all. Now, interestingly, the detail upon which um, the Crown wanted to expand regarding how the issue of tents might have played out in each individual area was the opposite of what the Crown generally sought regarding the negotiation of these historical accounts. Usually the Crown wants to be incredibly general about anything, but because they got this positive finding in the Waitangi Tribunal, they're very keen to mention the specificity Now, Crown law sought to explain that the government's obligations to Naitahu could have been achieved by the use of tents, but that they could have been achieved in another manner. Now, the Naitahu historians rejected this approach. They viewed it from their own point of view and the work of their own uh, Pakia historians, Anne Parsonson, who used to teach at the University of Canterbury, and Harry Everson, who is a longtime Pakia historian, uh, with Naitahu, I believe published his master's here at the University of Canterbury. Um, well, not here, but would be there. Um, in 1952, I believe, on the Naitahu land question. So it shows you how far back Harry's work went. Now, the Crown Law was firm in his view of the alleged reality of the history, and he tried to paint this rather stark picture of the way in which Naitahu was using history to its own benefit, which is obviously ignoring the ways in which the crown distorts the history. We all distort the history. Um, so we kind of had a point, but he was really up on his high horse there. The issue of tents would remain one of the most contentious um, historical disagreement, and eventually the crown generally wins out. We can see in the historical account in the final one, it says, that the tribunal considered that the Crown's obligation to make further provision for Naitahu in the purchase of the Otago block might have been satisfied by the creation of tents or by other adequate provision. Now, the tribunal report was also referred to in relation to other disagreements uh, regarding the inclusion um, of historical details. The Crown had purchased lands from Naitahu around Peninsula, 1849 and 1856, and these were done through land purchasing commissioner Walter Mantell. And we can see the Port Levy block there. It's way more than Coco Rarata Port Levy, as you can see there. It actually, Port Cooper takes up a little bit of it, and it stretches way past Pigeon Bay, O'Kane's Bay, all the way over to Flea Bay, uh, nearly at the Akaroa Heads. Uh, and comes effectively from Kaitorete Spit, an enormous block. Lots of issues there. The tribunal found that Mantel had been unnecessarily high-handed in negotiations with Naitahu. He brags about being high-handed in journals that we have from him. And he had been found by the tribunal to have unfairly denied Naitahu reserves at O'Kane's Bay and Pigeon Bay, which we can see here, Pigeon Bay and O'Kane's Bay. That they were 
overborne by Mantel in clear breach of Article 2 of the treaty, which required the consent of Naitahu to the sale of their land. Now, in this case, Naitahu had claimed that they had also requested reserves in another area within the Port Levy block, the Kaituna Valley, which you can see I've pointed out down here on the other side. The tribunal didn't comment on the validity of the Kaituna Valley claims, but Tao wanted to have it included that Mantel had also denied them reserves there. Without the tribunal finding in their favor, the government is pretty hesitant to include it. But he says, if you show me evidence um, that this was meant to be included, but the tribunal hadn't looked at it, then he was prepared to add it. In comes in Harry Everson. He had yet to print his history of the Naitahu claim, um, which was published in 93 and 98. And this was a very, very in-depth look at it, something that the Waitangi Tribunal didn't have at the time. The primary sources were clear. Naitahu had requested reserves at Kaituna Valley, shown to the Crown. And in that case, it was included. And we can, um, actually, I haven't put it out there, but you can take my word for it, that it was included in the historical account as well. Now, other issues which would come up. Tamaidi Tao wanted first the use of the term unconscionably that you can see here in the Crown's action, that the Crown acknowledges that it acted unconscionably. This is something that the Crown Law Office pushed back up against. A huge issue with this is the idea of unconscionable fraud. When something is uh, labeled as unconscionable fraud, it overrules the statute of limitations. Um, I believe murder and treason are the only other two uh, that override the statute of limitations. So this term unconscionable was very much uh, opposed by the Crown Law Office, but as you can see, it made its way into the apology. Another key issue that you can see highlighted there is that Tull wanted the Crown to describe its conduct as having failed in every material aspect rather than most material aspects. The Crown pointed to the tiny amount of land it had returned. It wasn't nothing. Um, and this is something that obviously did not make it in in the end, as you can see from the apology there. They did receive unconscionably, um, but they didn't get every material respect. Now, the most controversial position put forward by Crown Law was that the Crown had been responsible for keeping Naitahu in poverty, but that their poverty was relative to their previous state. Now, this is not something that was put to Naitahu directly. This is an internal debate of the Crown, but you can see how extreme uh, the Crown is getting to this. The Crown Law historian's view of the quote-unquote primitive state of Naitahu before European contact, you know, it's not an isolated contemporary interpretation of Indigenous people. We've got court cases in Canada, um, very famous 1991 Delgamuk versus the Queen. Uh, Chief, uh, British Columbian Chief Justice Alan McEachern described the lives of the claimants there. Um, prior to Europeans arriving as nasty, brutish, and short. 
New Zealand historian Paul Moon has also described the lives of most Maori in the decade before the signing of the treaty as nasty, brutish, and short, the same Lockean type uh, commentary. Now, ultimately, the Crown Law Office historian, um, his views didn't gain traction with the Office of Treaty Settlements, but it just is an absurd argument. In fact, at the time, the life expectancy was quite similar between here and Great Britain. It was really, really young. Um, we're talking about in uh, the 30s for both of them. Uh, so this argument of this nasty, brutish, and short uh, lifestyle is doesn't really run with it. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned, it wasn't something that was actually uh, told to Naito. In the end, though, the uh, fact that the Crown had failed to act in good faith and reduced Naitahu to poverty was clearly set out here. Um, and including some Fokotoki or proverb, uh, which had arisen as well, such as Tamate or Te'iwi, recognizing the malaise of the tribe that had resulted from this poverty. Uh, is something that obviously was included in the apology in the end. Other uh, proverbs also were included. A recognition um, from the Naitahu proverb, Hemahi kai takata, hemahi kai hoaka, that the work of the claim consumed Naitahu people uh, as ponamu or greenstone uh, consumes sandstone. This acknowledgement of the crown um, for the work that Naitahu done over seven generations uh, to keep pushing the claim is something that was very important to be included there. So we can see some aspects which, on which Naitahu was successful in having particularly uh, additions made. One of the final ones was this quote from a petition from the Naitahu Rangatira or leader uh, Matiaha Teramorehu in a petition to Queen Victoria uh, in 1857. He wrote to her, this was the command I love laid upon these governors that the law be made one, that the commandments be made one, that the nation be made one, that the white skin be made just equal with the dark skin and to lay down the love of thy graciousness to the Maori that they dwell happily and remember the power of thy name. Uh, Anglicans were very prominent uh, around Tuahiwi from where Matsiaha Teramorehu was from. So you can see the very strong religious overtones and the way in which this peaceful message is trying to be pushed in this appeal to Queen Victoria. So this was included in the apology as well um, and was a very, very important aspect for Naitahu. Now the debates that took place during Naitahu's negotiations, you know, revealed these very different historical interpretations of both the Crown and Naitahu regarding the history of the, the, the claims. And while you could see how the Crown uh, would consistently attempt to limit its liabilities, its legal liabilities, perhaps its future financial liabilities, Naitahu, on the other hand, pressed the Crown to use more emotive terminology and attempted to extend the boundaries of the historical interpretations of, it, of events. 
Now, Naitahu wasn't able to get everything, but they did obtain many important um, concessions. Now, surrounded by pictures and paintings of their tupuna, uh, of their ancestors, hundreds of Naitahu members were in attendance when the apology was delivered at Onukumarai uh, in Akaroa. Just got a quick little video. Naitahus has been consistently loyal to the crown and that the tribe has honored its obligations and responsibility under the Treaty of Waitangi and duties as citizens of the nation, especially but not exclusively in their active service in all of the major conflicts up to the present time to which New Zealand has sent troops. The Crown pays tribute to Naitahu's loyalty and to the contribution made by the tribe to the nation. The Crown expresses its profound regret and apologises unreservedly to all members of Taina, uh, Naita to all members of Naitahu Fanui, for the suffering and hardship. The Crown has said at our place, on our marae, in one of our traditional centres with our people gathered, um, we apologise for what has happened in the past. And our people have said, and on behalf of the past, on behalf of ourselves, we accept that. Yoda, thank you so much for listening. So thank you, Martin, and thank, thank you, you all for attending. Um, and hopefully see you next month in the flesh. You've been listening to Dr. Martin Fisher deliver his talk called Negotiating History, a Ngaitahu Treaty Settlement Historical Account, part of the annual lecture series of the Canterbury Historical Association and hosted at the University of Canterbury. Podcasts of this series are available at the Plains FM website, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.